All right, swig it. Boom. Welcome back to True Crime Trine. I know you've missed us. This is the podcast where the planets align. Three friends talk about true crime, so it's kind of a poem. We also talk about astrology and any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. Welcome to episode 12. Woo! It's mine. Let me switch tabs. Uh. It's also an even number. <laughs> All Which right, you love. so this will be this is gonna be fun. Uh, so I did finish my Dorothea Puente notes. Um, Yay! They're almost twice as long as any of my other episodes that I've done. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, she was a crazy lady, so I think it should be a wild ride. We're going to start in the future of Dorothea's story, the day before Thanksgiving, 1988. Put yourself in that mindset. 1988. All right. I was going to look up how to pronounce this guy's name, and I forgot. So Charlie, Will Gullies, we're going to call him Charlie. <laughs> there goes the, the food. Are you here? It's 9. It's 9 p.m., everybody. Uh, <laughs> Like clockwork, because it's set to a clock. Yeah, um, Science. <laughs> all right, let's meet Charlie, a retired carpenter who lived alone in Los Angeles and mostly liked it like that. You know, some people just live their own lives. He decided to stop for a drink at his local dive bar, the Monte Carlo. His life does kind of sound like what mine might end up, except I would never live in Los Angeles. Or probably be a carpenter. Okay. <laughs> But a dive bar? Give me that. I love dive bars. I do too. So the Monte Carlo is actually one of the perfect names for a dive bar too, because you're like, mm-hmm. oh, you think you're you think you're all fancy? You're not. <laughs> Maybe I should not have drank in a beer before we started. No, you definitely should have. Yeah, right. absolutely. This, this might be long, folks. Buckle in. So Charlie was drinking a drink. He was sitting across from the entrance, so. He was clearly able to see when a woman walked into the bar. And the woman looked very nice, like a woman who was probably slumming it by stopping by the Monte Carlo. She's a little high, too high class for the place. Okay. Okay, she did look a bit grandmotherly, to be sure, but with a bit of a sexy vibe. Like a cougar vibe? Yeah, like a little bit, like very nice hair done she had a fashionable red overcoat which will be on the website and she's wearing purple pumps which i want well red and purple is it's like the the hat society right yeah yeah which is for older women and i think you have to be like over 60 yeah and then the younger women that participate with the club wear lavender and pink oh i've never heard of this yep okay it's a thing that's funny because she definitely is wearing the wearing the wardrobe. 
But I think it's poking fun at the idea, like, once you get past a certain age, you don't care what doesn't go together. And, like, red mm-hmm. and purple are, like, two of those colors that are not complementary. They're very bright, but it was also the 80s. Well, oh, yeah. This is 1988, so. Were they just... neon? No, they were normal red and purple, but it okay. made sense. Okay. All right. This woman was making some eyes at Charlie. Ooh. Enough for him to feel bold enough to ask her to come sit by him. They got to talking, and Charlie got a bit more smitten because it seems like he was one of those guys that liked to be the conquering knight to a vulnerable woman. Oh, God. So this woman introduced herself as Donna Johansson, and she told him her sob story. Her husband had died a month ago. She's come to L.A. to start over. The taxi driver who took her to her hotel drove off with her luggage, and even her <laughs> shoes had gotten scuffed from the walk from the hotel to the bar. Perfect opening for Charlie to show his usefulness, who literally took her shoes to a shoe repair shop and brought them back to her when that was finished, which is just fucking weird to me. She's Wait, barefoot. so she was just sitting at the bar, like on the bar stool, waiting for her shoes to come back? Yes. Ew. Okay. Charlie. That's so creepy. I see you, but Charlie... <laughs> Trying a little too hard in like a really weird way. Really weird. Like, what else did he do to those shoes while he was gone? Ew. (laughs) Maybe Charlie's a shoe guy. All right, so Charlie came back. The conversation flowed freely. So, when Donna suggested that she could come over tomorrow and cook Thanksgiving dinner, Charlie readily agreed. He did think it was a bit odd that she brought up moving in together when they hadn't even known each other for more than two hours. But she was so charming in all the other ways that Charlie could overlook that red flag. Red flags, red coat. Well, in Connie's mind, everything was coming up Charlie. Okay. However, Donna wasn't actually a stranger to Charlie. He had seen her before on the TV news over the weekend. Her name was actually Dorothea Puente, and she had been named by the media the Death House Landlady. Ooh. Boom. All right, we're hitting it. We're going to go into Dorothea now. So Dorothea Helen Gray was born January 9, 1929 in Redlands, California, which means I'm doing another Capricorn woman. (laughs) That will come up later. All right. (laughs) From California. From California. Damn it. (laughs) C&C. Yeah. Not a great time to be born as the Great Depression was creeping closer and closer. Um, She was the sixth of seven children and ended up being mostly raised by her siblings as her parents were a hot mess. Sorry, wait, I thought this was 88. We're in 1929 on Dorothea's birth now. We're doing Dorothea's story. We're going to come back to Charlie later. Sorry. Okay, gotcha. Whoops. Charlie's still thinking about turkey. And mashed potatoes. And mashed potatoes and gravy and pumpkin pie. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, so this is Dorothea. She old. Her father, Jesse James Gray, awesome. was, yeah, was a suicidal World War I veteran mm. who was disabled and mentally ill as a result of mustard gas injury. Okay. As a scientist, I took a little tangent into mustard gas, so we're going to talk about that for a second. Mustard gas is a sulfur-based family of extremely toxic chemical warfare agents. And so in 1993, the Chemical Weapons Convention declared mustard gas to be a Schedule One agent, 
which means that this chemical has absolutely no other use besides warfare, which is a chemical I don't think we need. No. Mm -mm. I did bring up chloride ions in my last episode when I talked about lethal injection. Actually, my second to last episode when I talked about lethal injection. I really tried to hammer home the point that having your chloride ions in the right concentration is essential for life. Yes. What mustard gas does is replace chlorine ions with sulfur compounds, and that does not work the same. And it will block DNA replication and cell division and just start killing any exposed tissue. So mustard gas was first used in World War I by the German army on Dorothea's father. It's a very viscous liquid at room temperature. It needs to be aerosolized in order to be used as a weapon. So mustard gas exposure causes intense itching and irritation, which turns into large blisters filled with yellow fluid. Yuck. Mustard gas is also lipophilic. Do we remember what that means? Bad for membranes. Fat loving. It can easily penetrate the skin. Hmm. Or any cell. Yeah, but it lands on the skin mostly first. Yeah. This is deployed as an aerosol. It can also be inhaled, causing blistering and bleeding in the lungs. Oh, God, that sounds so painful. And like the trachea and whatnot. So this is, I mean, I thought mustard gas was like the cruel and unusual and it actually had been banned for use in warfare and chemical warfare. Like, you can't do that anymore. Maybe that's what happened in 1993 when they called it a class one or a schedule one and said its only purpose is warfare. And maybe it was banned or something. It was not banned in World War One. No. <laughs> uh, so moderate exposure to mustard gas is unlikely to kill, but it will take a very long time to recover. And severe mustard agent burns when over 50% of a victim's skin has been exposed. Those are usually fatal. These wounds heal very slowly. They're blisters. They can also burst open, which provides a nice open wound for bacteria to come in and grow and potentially cause sepsis and whatnot. So it's... um, Yuck. They also are extremely painful. And I'm going to let an unnamed British nurse from World War I tell you all about it. Quote, They cannot be bandaged or touched. We cover them with a tent of propped up sheets. Gas burns must be agonizing, because usually the other cases do not complain, even with the worst wounds. But gas cases are invariably beyond endurance, and they cannot help crying out, end quote. So, Mm. terrible. It's rough, man. I didn't find anything about how mustard gas could affect the brain directly, but there definitely is a correlation with mustard gas exposure and PTSD, which, yeah, fuck. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Because the physical toll of going through that ordeal or any kind of long-term illness could definitely lead to some PTSD or other mental illnesses. And it was the time after World War One. We don't really take care of our veterans very well now, but we definitely weren't taking care of their mental no. health then. So when Dorothy was seven years old, her father got drunk, passed out in a field, woke up completely soaked, and with a fatal case of tuberculosis. Oh, no. So... He died. All right, Dorothea's mother was Trudy May Gates, a complete and total alcoholic who often left her children alone for days or even weeks. Oh, wow. At best, Trudy was a disinterested mother, and she wasn't at her best very often. Oof. When Dorothea was eight, Trudy was killed while riding drunk on the back of a motorcycle. Okay. So, from the ages of eight to 16, her 
Life was very unstable, and she was passed between family members, orphanages, and foster care. So at 16, Dorothea was beautiful, and she knew how to use her looks to get what she wanted. She changed her name to Shari and moved up to Olympia, Washington. Um, Ooh, Olympia. Hey, shout out. Hey. Hey. <laughs> well, she earned money as a sex worker there. Oh, well, there's that. This was 1945, though, so not a bad time to be a sex worker, as all these soldiers were returning from deployment from the Pacific. So she actually was making very good money. Hmm. She did spend most of her money on alcohol, and she developed a heavy drinking habit that she would carry with her for the rest of her life. Makes sense. Yeah, especially if we consider addiction to be hereditary. Like, her mom was an alcoholic as well. Yeah, Yeah, it sounded like her dad... Had some beverages as well. I think you definitely say some is, beverages. I know. We're all drinking right now. We're all but drinking I'm beverages. <laughs> I'm not on a motorcycle. That would be a pretty neat trick, though. <laughs> I know. You'd have a lot of, like, work to, like, cut out all the sounds of the motorcycle in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so in November 1946, Dorothea married 22-year-old Fred McFall, who was a soldier who had just returned from the Pacific. The McFall parents gave this marriage a bit of a side-eye, as it was quickly clear that Dorothea was a pathological liar. Dorothea explained away the fact that no one from her side of the family came to the wedding by saying that she was born in Mexico, one of 18 children, and she had been (sighs) unable to get in touch with anyone in her family. Uh, okay. Why wouldn't she just say she was an orphan? Because she was... We're going to ask that question a lot. Why didn't she just say this? Because she also told some of the guests at the wedding that she met Fred when he rescued her from the Bataan Death March, which occurred in 1942 when the Japanese army took thousands of American and Filipino prisoners of war on a brutal 65-mile trek. Dorothea was not there. Clearly. I don't think Fred was there. Like, (laughs) no one was there besides the American and Filipino prisoners of war. Anyway, the newlyweds moved to the small town of Gardnerville, Nevada, where Dorothea quickly popped out two kids and just as quickly got rid of them, sending one to live with relatives and giving the other one up for adoption. The relatives she couldn't get in touch with. I know. It's, (laughs) it's, who knows anymore? Yeah. By 1948, Fred had had enough of Dorothea, who had extremely expensive taste and also kept giving away their children. So, Dor- <laughs> I mean, it's kind of yeah. it's kind of a mess, dude. <laughs> Dorothy had covered up the humiliation of having a failed marriage by telling people that Fred had actually died days after their marriage. So now she's oh. like a, a sad widow, a widow with a sad story. Okay. Yeah. Dorothy had next popped up on the record in 1948 when she was caught attempting to pass a bad check. Uh, she would serve four months in prison, and then she dropped off the radar for a while. The radar? I know. I can't say poor, and apparently I can't say radar, and I can't say heels. Heels, like mountain heels. Hills. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm learning things about my... Uh, I love it. <laughs> vocabulary. In 1952, Dorothea got married for the second time to Axel Johansson. This marriage lasted longer than her first marriage, but I'm not entirely sure why. She was the same kind of wife to Axel as her mother was to parenting. So her and Axel constantly get into fights and she would just disappear on her own for weeks to months. 
Uh, she also returned to sex work at this time, but felt as if her looks were failing, so she transitioned to operating her own brothel, which okay. apparently was fairly Madam. successful, but in 1960, she was caught and arrested, but only had to serve three months in jail. But they were in Nevada, right? Uh, no. Isn't that so legal? this point, she was either in California or Washington again. Oh, okay. Because she didn't like Gardnerville either. It was boring. Okay. And her husband was dead. Why would she stay there? Bad memories. But he... I know, I know. Oh, okay, okay. I'm like, wait. <laughs> Dorothy is full of shit. I'm not even done here. So, okay. in 1966, Axel finally had enough and filed for divorce. And maybe that's because she also started saying that she was in Hiroshima when the bomb was dropped. Oh, Lord. <laughs> she definitely wasn't. Oh. Even in 1960, we can figure oh. this out. In 1968... Dorothea turned from brothels and sex work to the sick, elderly, and alcoholic of Sacramento. Uh, she impressed the local cir- she impressed the local social workers by having a firm but loving hand, and it appeared that her boarders significantly improved after time in her boarding house. It was also a very nice house with a lot of sun. Dorothea did this home cooking, which contrasted drastically with the dark and dingy boarding houses that were way more common. Okay. Hmm. Dorothea did insist on having her border's social security checks transferred directly to her, but don't worry about it. She was just managing their money and preventing them from spending it on drugs and alcohol. Don't worry. She also began to represent herself as Hispanic. She's not. Okay. (laughs) But since she did grow up around migrant workers, she had a passable amount of Spanish and some knowledge of the Hispanic culture. She started... Referring to herself as La Doctora and would give out medical advice and quote-unquote vitamin injections. No. Oh. No idea what's in those. When she was 39, she married 21-year-old Roberto Jose Puente. This marriage lasted two whole weeks. (laughs) Or maybe 18 months. I've seen it both ways. I'm not sure which one's actually real. Still relatively short. Really short. But she did get a nice Hispanic surname out of it all, so... I think that's probably what she was hoping. Yeah, that's what she really wanted. By 1975, Dorothy was a well-known and well-loved figure in the Sacramento Hispanic community. And around this time, she also dropped her most sexy persona and cultivated a new persona as someone much older than 45 years. Interesting. It actually ended up working out really well for her. You say, "Wow, you look really good for your age." Yeah. In 1976, Dorothea married one more time. Can't give up on love. (laughs) Sure, that's what she's calling (laughs) it. To Pedro Montalvo, a mentally disturbed laborer at her birding house. This marriage also did not last longer than a month, but she did get another surname to use if she needed it. Oh. And I will say that Dorothea wasn't just pretending to be a respected member of the Hispanic community, because after her arrest, several young Hispanic women came forward to say that Dorothea had saved their lives by getting them out of troubling situations during that time. And one said, quote, I just hate to think about where I would be today if this woman had not touched my life, end quote. So she wasn't all bad. Okay. Okay. She was also intertwined in the political community of California and even danced with Governor Jerry Brown at a fundraising event. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh my god. She presented a very nice outer appearance, but inside she was falling apart. Uh, she was heavily drinking this whole time. 
Well, she got, you know, she was in Hiroshima when the bomb dropped, too, so of course. I know, that's not going to be easy on your looks. (laughs) She felt like her looks were fading and that she had gained a lot of weight. In 1977, she underwent a jejunal ileal intestinal bypass, where the very beginning of the small intestine is attached to the very end of the small intestine, bypassing the majority of the small intestine. This is a very bad idea, as... The majority of digestion occurs in the small intestine, and that's also where most of your nutrients are absorbed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't do this anymore due to severe side effects on the liver and other organs, but Dorothea had that going on too. How do you think Dorothea paid for these surgeries and fancy cars and the donations she regularly gave? With the money from her boarders. Yeah, yeah, those social security sh- checks that she insisted be deposited directly to her. Oh, no. She managed the fuck out of that money. They didn't get any alcohol. I know, so but she did. She got a lot. <laughs> so, this did not last, and she was caught when she continued to cash the Social Security checks of a former resident who was currently then in jail. So, apparently, when you're in jail, you can't get Social Security. Okay. Oh. I didn't know that, but um, that's how she was caught, because she was cashing this guy's checks that he was incarcerated so they got really like what the fuck but she was able to use her grandmotherly persona in order to avoid being sent to prison by playing <laughs> on the judges and jury's sympathies uh, she received five years probation in which she was forbidden to do literally anything around social security checks and was sent to a mandatory psychiatric counseling where she was diagnosed with the relatively uninformative quote schizophrenic chronic undifferentiated type end quote which in the 70s was a catch-all terms for all kinds of unexplained behavioral problems. Okay, so it could have been like <laughs> yeah, 70s bipolar, it could have been mental health could stuff. have been anything. <laughs> I think there's a bit of narcissism in here. Being a pathological liar is also a mental illness at mm-hmm. some point as well, I think. Because you yeah. just lie and lie and lie, and you aren't even telling good lies, but you still do it. This reminds me of the chameleon episode of SVU when she just like fits into whatever role she needs to. Oh, yeah. Okay, SVU or Criminal Minds, they've covered it all. (laughs) (laughs) So following the sentencing, Dorothea spent about a year in Stockton where she worked menial odd jobs as a cook, cleaner, or dishwasher. She only had about a year's worth of shame in her, so in 1979, she came back to Sacramento. This time, she decided a smaller operation was right for her, and she didn't need to maintain the socialized lifestyle that she was previously doing. Uh, She also looked into her collection of last names and began calling herself Dorothea Montalvo. Okay. So during the early 80s, some suspicious shit was going on in Sacramento, and doctors and social workers began to take notice, but no one actually called the police, citing, quote, not enough evidence, end quote. Some social workers and doctors did steer their clients away from Dorothea, but nothing official was done. <laughs> what? Let me uh, go to my bottle. But why? What? Like, how do they not? They're like, don't go to her house, because... We've got this feeling, but... But... That she's not legit in her house and not a real practice. Yes. So, in one case, Dorothea was caring for a female patient who was repeatedly brought into the hospital with shallow breathing and an irregular heartbeat. The doctors would stabilize her, send her back home, where she would relapse and be brought back to the hospital. A social worker convinced a doctor to run a toxicology test, which revealed traces of phenobarbital and 
Digo- I've never said that word out loud. D-I-G-O-X-I-N. Digoxin? Digoxin? I've never heard of that. D-I-G-O-X-I-N. It's like a heart thing that comes from like the holly oak or something. Anyway, they are drugs, but neither one of them was on this woman's list of prescriptions. So the dentist confessed that the dentist where am i dentist (laughs) get out of here dentist you're not part of the story it's another role uh the doctor convinced the patient to fire dorothea and she was magically cured and suffered no more relapses crazy in 1982 it seemed like dorothea got a bit bored with just being a terrible caretaker so she went to a bar picked up a man in his 70s and convinced him to take her back to his apartment At some point, she drugged him with a substance that paralyzed him, that kept him conscious. So he was forced to watch, helplessly, as Dorothea collected his valuables, with the final indignity occurring when she literally took his hand and pulled off a ring that he was wearing and left. Oh my god. Oh my god. Uh, He remained paralyzed for at least another hour before he was finally able to call the police. Wow. I couldn't even imagine. No, like... That's like my, not my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare is dying in a house fire. But like being paralyzed and like, but still conscious and forced to watch this happen and you can't even speak. There's a lot of ties back to lethal injection in this episode, but we'll move on. Okay. At around the same time, Dorothea befriended an 82-year-old woman that she met at the hairdressers. Dorothea told the victim that she was a county nurse and the victim invited Dorothea to her house where Dorothea diagnosed her with high blood pressure and gave her some medication, which rendered her unconscious. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) When she regained consciousness, she found her diamond ring and medications were missing. Hmm. Dorothea was able to pull this scam on two more elderly women. And then in all of these cases, the victims remembered how caring and friendly Dorothea was. And in some cases were even reluctant to fire her. Because I just couldn't see her being the one that was doing this. So, like, some random person broke into your house while you were unconscious and stole mm-hmm. your shit? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. So, by the spring of 1982, Dorothea had been arrested four times, but released on bail every time. She was only 54 years old at this point, but she claimed to be in her 70s. And she really sold her Whoa. elderly, helpless persona to the courts. Which hmm. fell for it. Enough that she was never sent to prison. Wait, to the courts. So they don't actually have record of who she really is at this point? I don't know. It was the 80s. To recognize that she's not actually... That's insane. Yeah. Dorothea argued the victims had actually given her the checks and the gifts and reminded the courts of her diagnosis of, quote, schizophrenic, chronic, undifferentiated type, end quote, saying that, quote, I've got a psychiatric condition. I sometimes forget my actions, end quote. <laughs> Which was apparently okay. a good enough reason to not have to face any consequences. <laughs> okay. I also have a psychiatric <laughs> disorder. Can I go do a crime? Well, maybe back in uh, the Before 80s. I was born. Yeah. All right. So, that's Dorothea. Well... Let's liven it up and go on to the murders. All right. The opposite of livening it up. Because <laughs> being paralyzed while somebody is stealing shit or worse from you is... Uh... Wasn't bad enough? Yeah. Yeah. So, in April 1982, 
Dorothea met Ruth Monroe, who was a retiree whose life was falling apart as her husband had been suddenly diagnosed with a terminal illness. Uh, In order to help Ruth support herself, Dorothea offered to go into business with her, and they formed a business partnership to run a catering business. Uh, She also offered to let Ruth live with her at 1426 F Street. That's an important address. Which is the notorious house where all the murders took place. So on April 11th, Ruth moved in with Dorothea. According to Dorothea, soon after Ruth moved in, she had a nervous episode over her marriage and her husband dying, and she had to be sedated by doctors. On April 27th, Ruth's son came to visit his mother and was told by Dorothea that the doctor had just left after administering a sedative to Ruth. Dorothea tried to convince the son to come back later and to not disturb Ruth right now, but he went up to Ruth's bedroom anyway, where he found her lying on her side, facing the wall with her eyes open, but completely immobile. Oh no. She didn't seem to notice that her son had entered her room, but her son figured that her listlessness was a result of the sedative, and his last words to his mother were, quote, Don't worry, Mom. Everything's going to be all right. Dorothea will take care of you. End quote. Oh. A tear trickled from Ruth's eye, but she remained immobile. Ugh. The next morning, April 28th, Ruth Monroe was dead. According to Dorothea, she had died in her sleep. An autopsy was conducted and high doses of codeine were found in her system. But her death was ruled to be of undetermined cause. But based on information about Ruth's failing marriage and whatnot, it was considered by most officials to be a suicide. Okay. Wow. Jeez. So on August 19, 1982, Dorothea was finally sentenced to five years in prison for grand theft, robbery, and forgery. So this whole time that she was, like, fucking around with Ruth, she was also in and out of the courts because she was doing all these crimes. Okay. After she was sentenced, the Monroe family brought their suspicions that Dorothea was involved with their mother's death to the DA, but the DA's office decided that there wasn't enough evidence to do anything, and anyway, Dorothea was already in jail, so we good. Okay. All right, this is the second story that I'm bringing that involves prison pen pals. (laughs) (laughs) I do. Yeah. Dorothea was released after serving three years and was picked up by Everson Gilmouth, a retired widower in his 70s who had been living in a trailer on a sister's farm in Oregon. Over the three years that Dorothea was in prison, she and Everson had written letters back and forth, and when Dorothea was released, she had convinced Everson that she was ready to settle down and straighten her life out with somebody she loved. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm guessing they didn't have prisonpenpals.com back then. No. Did it say, like... It didn't say how you... Okay. Especially because she was in prison in California and he was in Oregon. Yeah. I don't know. I know this lady. I think you're really going to like her. She just has to get out of prison first. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. There was a, a train wreck that I follow on Facebook sometimes. And she posted to me one time that just said, I would date if all the good men weren't in jail. And I was like, what? What the fuck does that even what? mean? What are your parameters, ma'am? Wow. Ma'am. Uh, by definition, they're not doing good. This reminds me of those letters that Yulong and Robin had at their apartment. Letters? There were a series of letters written from somebody in prison to like the wrong address or like to the previous tenant. Why did not they tell me about this? You were there when we read them. I was probably drunk. Yeah. 
They were that explains it. They were a little dramatic. Yeah. Oh, damn. I'm gonna. Yeah, bug. It's like getting the the wrong number text messages. Yeah. Like, oh like God, full on it. letters. Oh, letters. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm gonna have to yep. bother Robin next time I see him. I want to know about these letters. They were handwritten letters. I think like from a son to his mother apologizing for like his actions and stuff Aww. growing up and like oh my god it was <laughs> I was it was heavy definitely <laughs> drunk because I don't remember any of this okay at least it wasn't Dana Yule in a perspective like girlfriend oh. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah at least it wasn't like a love letter it could have yeah. been gross I think that would be more entertaining. It would be very mm-hmm. entertaining, though. <laughs> it's like eavesdropping on that first date. Which is my fucking favorite <laughs> thing to do. Did I already talk about this on the podcast? Eavesdropping? I'm a major eavesdropping. eavesdropper. And so the last mm-hmm. time that I was at my favorite bar in the afternoon, I eavesdropped on this couple that were definitely on their first date. And the guy didn't talk very much, but the woman did say that one of her greatest dreams in life was to be pulled over by the cops so that she could flash a police officer. Interesting. And that's how she would get out of the ticket. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, that's a, that's something. That's assuming that her boobs are good enough to get her out of the ticket. <laughs> I don't know. We have the internet now, man. I don't know if that works. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot the other thing she said, but it was just a train wreck and she got a nice hug and then he left. <laughs> It was so nice to meet you. Goodbye. Anyway, back to Dorothea. Dorothy was released in August 1985, and Everson brought her back to 1426 F Street in his red Ford pickup. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, what? I'm dropping, what? That's going to be important, maybe? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a detail. It's just something. I like details. The owner of the house at 1426 F Street had been completely charmed by Dorothea, and continued to rent her a floor in the house while she was in prison, and then the entire house once she was released. She just sounds very charming. I think she can turn on the charm really well. I really want to know what her rising is, but we'll get to that later. So she was picked up in August. In September, Everson's sister became concerned that she had not heard from him and called the Sacramento police, who dropped by the house to do a welfare check. Unfortunately, question mark, Everson was still alive and well at this time, and he called his sister that evening, extremely annoyed about her her interference, and then she never spoke to him again. But it's kind of a, yeah, yeah, now she wouldn't do it again because she heard from her brother and, like, he was mad at her and whatnot, so. Yeah. In November, she received a telegram from her brother. Did we send telegrams in 1985? At that point, I feel like it's, like, just the delivery service, so you have an actual person deliver the message? Yeah, I don't... Is that not what a telegram... I don't know. I have a question mark on this one. She received some sort of communication from her brother. <laughs> Might have been a telegram. I know you can send, like, singing telegrams still. Yeah. But it's more, like, for fun or jokes. Yeah. To be, like, cutesy and old-timey about it. hmm Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> anyway... Uh, she received something from her brother that said that things did not work out with Dorothea. He was heading south, and she was not to interfere with his life. Uh-huh. Everson was last seen at the F Street house in mid-December, looking rather sickly, but Dorothea was helping him with his medication, so no worries there. He was oh, right. being taken care of. Okay. In late December 1985, so we're still in the same year. She just got released from prison in August 1985. Dorothea hired Ishmael Flores 
who, to no one's surprise, she had met in a bar. And she hired him to do some carpentry around her house. And then when he was finished with that, she requested that he make a large storage box for her. About six feet by three. Oh, hmm. In, ex- uh, in exchange for this labor, she would give him a red Ford pickup truck. Oh. Before he was able to take full custody of the truck, Dorothea asked him to help her load the box into the truck and then drive it out to his storage unit. But on the way to the storage unit, Dorothea suddenly changed her mind and told Ishmael that there was no point in storing the junk in this box, so could he just dump it by the Sacramento River instead? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> So the body was discovered on New Year's Day. The autopsy revealed no wounds or injuries on the body, and advanced decomposition prevented ter- determination of cause of death. There was also no identification, so the body was called a John Doe. Ever since pension checks continued to be sent to 1426 F Street, on February 1986 there was a bit of a mix-up with the payments, but somebody sent a letter to the pension fund office, which quickly set things right and the checks continued to arrive. Oh, how convenient. I know, she could be charming through letters, I guess. Mm-hmm. So Dorothea turned that house on F Street into an unlicensed boarding home for the derelict, the ill, and the alcoholic Social Security recipients. Social services, as usual, was extremely overworked and understaffed. There had also been a lot of turnover in the three years that Dorothea had been in prison. And at this point, she was using, she was using Puente as her new last name. So most people didn't really know anything about her history at this point. Okay. Plus, Dorothea would take on the hard cases, the ones that had nowhere else to go, and, and like, she would treat them well, and at least it appeared that she would to outsiders. <laughs> According to social worker Elizabeth Valentine, quote, I can walk into the kitchen and smell all the wonderful food Dorothea would cook every day. Sitting in her living room in nice, comfortable chairs, a very welcoming interest to her home. Very homey. Cozy and clean, smells good, and she's smiling. She looked the quintessential grandmother. Open arms, take the people that we could not. She was there to provide hope, end quote. <laughs> okay. Wow. Elizabeth Valentine ended up being one of the people who alerted police about Dorothea's suspicious behavior. So, Elizabeth was the social worker of one Bert Montoya, a mentally handicapped 50-year-old man who Elizabeth had placed with Dorothea. Bert was originally from Central America. No one quite knew where, because Bert heard voices in his head and preferred those voices to talking to anybody else. Oh, Bert. Oh, that's so sad. Well, at first, Elizabeth would drop in a check on him, and Bert seemed to be doing quite well. You know, better than Elizabeth had ever seen him before. But then, suddenly, Bert was never around. She dropped in a check on him. Elizabeth asked Dorothea about birth. About birth. Birth? Birth. Dorothea never gave birth. No, she gave two births. She's, she, yeah, she's like, just give them away afterwards. This is what she has to say about birth. What she has to say about Bert was that she had sent Bert to Mexico to live with her extended family. Definitely a little weird. Elizabeth was a bit surprised, but not suspicious as of yet. Uh, she did ask Dorothea to arrange for someone from Mexico to call her. Quote, we just wanted to hear her voice, probably talk to her brother to see how it was going, end quote. Mm-hmm. A couple weeks passed with no call from Mexico, but Dorothy was extremely apologetic and reassured Elizabeth that the call would happen soon. Then she subtly changed her story and said that Bert had come back from Mexico, but had immediately moved to Utah 
or Colorado, I've seen it both, to live with a relative. This was suspicious, as Elizabeth Elizabeth had never heard of a long-lost relative in Utah slash Colorado. Elizabeth called on Dorothea and was shocked by the change in her demeanor, as Dorothea had become openly hostile. God, said Elizabeth, I'll never forget walking up on that porch. She was not a happy camper. The look in her eye was very different, very cold, very direct. It was a stare down. That's when I began to think, wait a minute. And a sort of crack appeared in my image of her, end quote. Creepy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's no longer like the cute little grandma figure anymore. Like, it's a complete, like, change of persona again. Eesh. Elizabeth was able to talk to John Sharp, who was one of the boarders who had been at Dorothea's for a while. He let Elizabeth know that Dorothea was an alcoholic with an explosive temper that she took out on the residents. Hmm. He was also becoming suspicious of the common disappearances that happened at the boarding house. In the past, John had worked for the Kansas City Mortuary Service, and when Ben Fink left mysteriously, John smelled an odor that he had not smelled in years. Quote, you never forget that smell. Oh, no. Elizabeth went to the police, but Detective John Cabrera took the story with a grain of salt. But he did remember an incident that involved that address. About six months earlier, John had arrested a junkie named Brenda Trujillo. Quote from John. I remember we were walking to the jail, and she's hostile. She's yelling, what about Dorothy? You guys don't do nothing about her. She's burying people in her yard. I live there. I know. You guys don't even care. And we said, all right. But then we parked it. End quote. Dorothy's yard was clearly visible from the sidewalk and exposed to the neighboring houses. So it just seemed like a crazy thought that she could be burying people in the yard. Yeah, mm. it's a junkie story. Yeah, they put it down as a story as a ranting drug addict and just let it be. Mm-hmm. Plus, Dorothea had become, again, an entrenched and respected member of the community. Quote from John, I can't just go there empty-handed. This woman is highly praised by politicians, by ambassadors from other countries, Plus, our officers go by, and she gives them tamales and burritos, end quote. Authentic Mexican uh, food. So authentic. However, after Elizabeth told John her suspicions, John did a bit of digging and quickly found out that Dorothea was actually on federal parole. So that was enough <laughs> for the police to pay Dorothea a visit. They told her that they had received a complaint about a missing person and the possibility of foul play. And then they asked if she would mind if they poked around a little in her yard. They definitely did not have a warrant at this point. Dorothea could have said no. Dorothy had no objections, though, as long as they didn't disturb the freshly planted flowers, telling them that they wouldn't find anything. Because she had already pulled up those daisies? No, that was just another (laughs) lie. The police very quickly dug up the remains of a corpse buried in a shallow (gasps) grave. Ugh! Dorothy was taken in for questioning, but this corpse had clearly been there for quite a long time. So it definitely wasn't burnt, as it was much too decomposed at this point. And Dorothea acted as surprised as anyone that there was a corpse in her backyard. <gasps> oh my god! What? Oh Who? My. What? Where? Who put that there? Weird! <laughs> so there was enough grayness here that raised the possibility that the corpse had been there before Dorothy had moved in. So Dorothea was released for the evening. Wow. Uh, The next morning, the police returned and continued their search of the yard, while Dorothea remained nonchalant and calm. Although they continued to dig up bodies, when Dorothea (gasps) asked if she could go to a nearby hotel for a cocktail to calm her nerves, 
The officers still found her to be grandmotherly and harmless enough that they agreed. One of the officers even drove her to the hotel to protect her from the media. I love Meredith's face with this. <laughs> like, you're digging up fucking bodies and you're going to let her go get a beverage? Oh my There's God. There's literally a picture that I'm going to post on the website that is of her leaving the house escorted by a police officer in her red coat and purple pumps going to the hotel. <gasps> oh. I need to time out for one second. You let her be Okay. Okay. That is ridiculous. Oh my god. <laughs> Smart. If you want to be uh, a criminal, just act like a little old lady and then no one will suspect you. How on earth could you possibly dig holes and do terrible things to people? And They're literally pulling bodies out of her fucking yard and they're like, oh yeah, go have a drink. <laughs> I can't even. That's insane. No. <laughs> Okay, I'm back. So tell me more about this drink that she went to go get. I think she was partial to gin and tonics, Sarah. Okay. Oh, hi. Also partial to gin and tonics. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice, easy go-to when you're like, I don't know, wanting a cheap well drink. And and you just need to pour two things bar. together if you're going to make it at home. Yeah, it's not complex. Nah, but I don't like tonics, so I just pour alcohol into my LaCroix. Fair enough. I feel like that needs more sugar to it, though. A bit, but I was going to drink the LaCroix anyway. Yeah. Anyway, back to Dorothea. By the end of the day, the police had unearthed seven bodies. <gasps> wow. So I'm going to just talk about these bodies so we can talk about the victims for a second. Among the seven bodies, wrapped and taped in bedspreads and plastic like mummies, was the body of Bert Montoya, the missing oh. handicapped man those social workers were so adamant to find. Poor Bert. Yeah, poor Bert. There was Dorothy Miller, an alcoholic 64-year-old Native American woman who was discovered with her arms duct taped to her chest. Oh. No, por qué? I don't know. Uh, she was last seen by her social worker sitting on Dorothea's front porch and smoking a cigarette. There was Benjamin Fink, who we brought up before, mm. A 55-year-old man with a drinking problem who was last seen by a witness in April 1988 when they took him upstairs to quiet him down after he became argumentative. He was found buried in his striped boxer shorts. Oh. Betty Palmer, a 78-year-old victim, was found buried minus her head, hands, and feet. Oh Where'd those go? I don't know. Oh, my God. Beneath a statue of St. Francis of Assisi, just a few steps from the sidewalk. So in, in the <gasps> front yard. Oh, my God. What the fuck? How does she get away with that? Uh, when you see this house, Sarah, you know what Sacramento houses look like. I already Googled it. <laughs> There's not it, any place to put. There's, it's, it's not. No. Um, Let's see here. It's tiny. James Gallup, a 62-year-old man who had survived a heart attack and brain tumor surgery, but not the care that Dorothea accorded him on F Street. Vera Faye Martin, 64, whose wristwatch was still ticking when she was unearthed, and oh my gosh. Oh. who investigators believed, judging by the patterns of earth around her body, might have been buried alive and attempted to claw her way out of her shallow grave. Oh, poor thing. No. Oh. Yeah. The last one they found was Leona Carpenter, 78, who had been discharged from a hospital into Puente's care and then subsequently vanished. 
So it's just really sad because these were all like the people that no one really paid attention to to begin with. And then, yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, if a lot of them even had social workers and people to watch after them that didn't check up on them or follow through or family, fully. like, yeah, I mean, oh, God, yeah. The police quickly realized that it had been a massive mistake to allow Dorothy to leave. <laughs> oh, whoops. You fucking think so? Uh, so they rushed to the hotel, but obviously Dorothy was gone. Peace. Uh, what followed was one of the most massive manhunts in California history, alongside probably one of the most <laughs> frantic police spin control efforts that has ever occurred as well. <laughs> Someone find this old lady. So luckily, we lost grandma. grandma. Yeah, luckily for the Sacramento PD, Charlie. Remember Charlie? Mm. Charlie. He finally remembered where he had seen Donna Johansson on the on the news. During a- I just can't put my finger uh, on it, uh, but you uh, look familiar. Uh, oh, you're on the news during that piece about the manhunt. And the fucking bodies in the yard. Yeah, that, that woman. And they're older men and women like, like me. He did call KCBS TV first. But after <laughs> good on you, Charlie. After the TV. They got the interview. They decided it would be best to call the police. Charlie got paid. Charlie had to have gotten paid. Yeah. Yeah. Dorothea quote Donna Johansson when they mm-hmm. was arrested that night. So That's good. I mean, so I mean, did Charlie face any obstruction of justice charges for not calling the police immediately? Honestly, I think the police were just like, thank God she's back. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Everyone thinks we're the dumbest police force in America. Uh, and we just well, gotta... Uh, yeah, yeah, and like, we might deserve that. We just gotta move forward. Yeah, I, I hear that. And if Charlie hadn't called, they wouldn't have found her that night. Yeah. I guess I'm just thinking, like, what if they aired the story? Oh, no, like, the reporter was still with him, like, in his house and they called together. Oh, I see. Okay. So it hadn't been aired yet or anything either. All right. That's good. Dorothea was charged with nine counts of murder. Mm-hmm. But despite the fact that seven of the bodies had literally been dug up from her yard, it wasn't a slam dunk of a case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the advanced state of decomposition of the corpses made it difficult to determine the cause of death. And it was difficult to separate the drug contents in the corpse from drugs normally prescribed to the victims. The majority of the victims were also alcoholics, so it was difficult to rule out the possibility that these were cases of accidental death when alcohol and prescription drugs kind of collided and did not get along. You don't bury people who died in your care in your yard. <laughs> yeah, you just... you, it's you call... seven bodies in your fucking yard. <laughs> Well, you call someone to pick up the body and put it in a bag and carry it off to, yeah, a mortuary. You don't, you don't just um, bury it. <laughs> Let me be Dorothea's defense right here. Okay. You would if you were Dorothea, because you would be worried that your parole would be revoked if officials found she was illegally operating a boarding house. Specifically, something she was told not to do on parole. Another illegal thing, then. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So... The defense argued these are natural deaths, and the only thing Dorothy was guilty of was not telling anyone about them, basically. Uh, Dorothy did not testify. <laughs> what about a abuse of a corpse that one lady didn't have? I know, that on. can't yeah. be okay. That's messed up. That's that's really messed up, but it, the only one that she did that to, and it never said anything about 
Hmm. There's something else going on there. Yeah. Must have really, like, pissed her off or something. Yeah. I mean, she's a little lady. Does she have, like, a hacksaw? What? How How do you remove? I don't. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I don't have an answer. Dorothea did not testify in her trial. And after what was then the longest deliberation in a murder case in California history, 24 days the jury deliberated. Wow. Wow. Dorothy was convicted of three of the murder counts and sentenced to life in prison on December 10, 1993. The reason it took 24 days is because there was one lone juror who disagreed with the other 11 that Dorothy was guilty. Was his name Warren Maskell? No, I don't know what his name is. But according to others that were on the jury, this was an extremely tense time and almost ended up in a fist fight at one point. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, dude. I was about ready to be in a fist fight this afternoon with stuff that was dramatic, so I could see that. You know, 24 (laughs) days of this too, like... You're like, I want out of here. She had seven fucking bodies in her yard. What are you fucking doing here, dude? Get your shit together. In the end, the lone juror finally agreed to convicting her of three murders. But he never deemed to explain his decision to change his mind. So we don't really know what he was thinking this whole time. Okay. He was thinking he gets paid to be on a jury through his work. And he didn't want to go back to work. He just wanted to get paid through his work oh. to be on the jury. So like at my Dude. work, if I go on jury duty, I still get my regular you pay. You still get paid? Oh. hmm <gasps> Because it's a public service. Oh, right. Oh. Okay. I could be on a trial for... However long. Like a year if you're on the OJ trial. Yeah, I'd still get paid. Wow. Okay. Well, we have a a reason, perhaps. So, in 2009, Dorothea was interviewed by a reporter for Sacktown Magazine. And I'm recommending that everybody read this article, which I'm going to link on the website. But I'm going to talk about it a little bit, too. So, when she met this reporter, Dorothea added to her own backstory, and she talked about the time that she had been scouted in a department store and joined the Radio City Rockettes. And how did that, how did that end for her? Quote, I was on stage when the girl next to me broke her heel and bumped into me. We both fell into the orchestra pit and I broke my leg. The other dancer? She was paralyzed. End quote. <laughs> Which okay. is just so fucking dramatic. Oh, my God. At a different interview date, she bragged that she had played a few tournaments on the newly formed LPGA Tour in the 50s. Something about golf. Yeah. (laughs) And so when the reporter asked her how she juggled being a Rockette and a professional golfer, I just did, was her answer. (laughs) Cool. Mm Mm-hmm. When she was first convicted, she admitted to thinking about suicide but she never followed through because suicide is an unpardonable sin. <laughs> uh, and murder oh, is oh, not. I guess she murder is pardonable. Or theft. I haven't read. Or just paralyzing oh someone God. for. I don't know. Cutting someone's head and hands like off. A lot of. Not, mm-hmm. No, apparently it's fine. She never admitted to any of the crimes, let alone expressed any remorse for them. Because she wasn't sorry. I just Googled her picture. It's totally sorry, not sorry. Yeah. She does not give a fuck. No. Nope. Yeah. Oh, you'll let me tell you how much she doesn't give a fuck. She maintains that she was set up. She was an easy scapegoat for the police and is 100% not guilty of murdering anybody. <laughs> when the reporter asked how it felt to be known as a murderer anyway, 
Dorothea was blunt. Quote, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. End quote. <laughs> so Dorothea don't care. Her entire life. Uh, Dorothea don't care. Well, at least she's honest about I it. I know. She's honest for once in her life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this other quote from Dorothea because, of course, she's going to reference the Bible like people in prison like to do. Dorothea says, I'm not guilty. They don't have all the facts. They never talk to me. I don't think anyone would pick this kind of life, but God always puts obstacles in people's way. Look at Job, John, Paul, Moses. Things happen for a reason, end quote. I'm surprised she didn't include Jesus in that one. (laughs) When the reporter asked, like, why are you in prison then? What's the reason for that? She responded, quote, to give strength to other people, end quote. I don't know which people. That's unclear. The ones that she's hanging out with in prison? (laughs) Well, overall, she's been a very compliant prisoner and has had a very uneventful stay at prison. She stole that grandmotherly persona. She still cooked with the prison food, whatnot. Like, she did okay. Her handmade tamales? Yep. But not because she didn't have the ingredients. She made weird stuff out of ramen and whatever. Oh. Well, you know. She was uh, resourceful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. She had numerous small daily duties, and then she would read John Christian books and watch TV. Her favorite shows being very closely aligned to my favorite shows. (laughs) CSI, no, but Criminal Minds, and Cold Case. Oh. Oh. (laughs) When she was asked what she missed most of her pre-incarceration life, she answered with, quote, Going to church every day, cooking what I want, working in my yard. <gasps> Digging those holes. And then planting the Gotta flowers on top of them. <laughs> oh. Damn. That's what it is, Hanging out with the bodies. No fucking remorse. Not even a little bit. In 2004, she collaborated with publisher Shane Bugby, who has also worked with John Wayne Gacy, so Shane has a type, to publish <laughs> a cookbook called Cooking with a Serial Killer. You can buy it on Amazon. Well, at least it wasn't Dahmer. Good luck. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh my god. That is a good one. Ba-boom. I'm going to put a link on the website so y'all can look at it, but I do not know who actually gets the money when this book is bought, so eh, I don't know. But as Shane Bugby wrote in the foreword, quote, Dorothy has been accused of a lot of things, but being a bad cook isn't one of them, end quote. Fair enough. And he has a point because everyone talked about her cooking and loved it. She had the police in her hand because of some tamales, like, so. Yeah. She was a good cook. Is that going to be our food for this episode? I love tamales. tamales. Yes. Oh, me too. Origin and tonic for uh, Dorothea's alcoholism. I'll do the G&T. You can do the tamale. I'll do the tamale. This uh, Cooking with a Serial Killer is a weird little book that contains recipes, obviously, as well as an interview where she tells her side of the story. And ends with the collection of her letters, artwork, and poetry. Oh, boy. Uh, if you want to try a Dorothea recipe, I'm going to link to a post on Reddit slash r slash old recipes where someone posted and praised her stuffing recipe, which actually, that was what I was thinking as a food pairing, was oh, to make her stuffing. okay. To actually post that and recipe, like, yeah. like, it's posted on Reddit by somebody, and they say it was actually very good. So, Dorothea... When they died in a state prison in March 2011 at age 82 of natural causes. Not 100% sure why they still called her Puente. 
that was her third marriage. I mean, you know, whatever. Anyway, she did die. So there is that. Bye. She fucking lived a bonkers life. That's crazy, crazy shit. It's so... Ah! I have some media. So for media, Oxygen just dropped a two-part documentary about Dorothea called Murders at the Boarding House. And Oxygen has converted itself to purely true crime, so you know what you're getting, and it's it's good. It's good fun. <laughs> I haven't watched this next one, but it seems like it could be quite silly fun. This is season 13, episode 5 of Ghost Adventures. When the Ghost Adventures crew goes and investigates the boarding house on F Street looking for any kind of paranormal activity. Ooh, could, spooky I, shit. I know, that could be fun. I haven't seen it. But I think it could be fun. Mm-hmm. For books, I read Buried Beneath the Boarding House by Ryan Green, who already mentioned Ooh. on this podcast. Yeah, he did the Leonardo Cianciulli book, The Curse. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's, a, mm-hmm. he's a very standard true crime author. He's pretty prolific. You get exactly what you expect, but you get what you need, is okay. what I would say about Ryan Green. It's not literature, but you get what you need. Mm-hmm. I've also started a book called When She Was Bad, How and Why Women Get Away with Murder by Patricia Pearson, which seems like it is going to be a, a solid read, but if you really want to get into this, read Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters by Peter Vronsky. And <laughs> while you're at it, read all of Peter Vronsky's books, and then you won't need to listen to us anymore because you will know everything about true crime. <laughs> okay, That's a maybe- lot of reading. Don't do that. I don't have time to read. I love Peter Vonsky. Audiobooks and road trips. Ah. I don't get to take road trips, though. Okay. I don't think she listen to an audiobook about true crime while her daughter's in the back, either. Uh, yeah, that's true. true. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know. Like, I put, I put on um, podcasts all the time in my headphones as I'm doing, like, house chores. Mm-hmm. I do that as well, um, and she can't hear me, but, yeah. no, I definitely couldn't do it in the car. <laughs> that was... Crazy bananas. Crazy bananas. Uh, on to the astrology? Yes. Yes. Well, here's another Capricorn murderer. <laughs> Ta-da. Where I identify with some of her characteristics. Even worse, she's a Capricorn sun and a Capricorn moon. Like oh. me. Oh. Yep. Except she's not really tied to facts in the same way that you are. <laughs> no, so I don't have her birth time. And so I don't know what her rising sign is. And I don't think it's Virgo. I feel like it's Gemini or something. Because she's... Hey! She's not tied to facts, but she's also... Or Libra, maybe, because she's charming enough to charm anyone if she only knows them for a short time. Yeah. Sorry, Libra folks. I like you. I'm trying. I mean, there's the, like an aesthetic and an energy, but I feel like the... Being torn in multiple directions. Yeah. So I feel like her rising sign has to be something less earthy because she was very charming. Sorry, earth sign peeps. We're not charming. <laughs> so let's start with some positives of the Capricorn sun. They are practical, hard workers who will get shit done. Whatever else you want to say about Dorothea, she definitely had hustle. Yeah. <laughs> Digging all those holes. As an old lady. I don't know. Cooking all those, that food, work. whatever. Still at all those social security checks. It's a lot of work. Mm. Capricorns are known for their ambition, and many of them crave status symbols, which kind of aligns with how Dorothea would constantly lie about her past. 
and wanted to kind of ingratiate herself into the Sacramento elite, which lasted for a while at least. We're going to move on to her Mars. Her Mars is in Gemini, Sarah. Ah, there we go. Mars is the planet. That's how yeah. she tackles her problems. Rules our drive. It's our passion. <laughs> Turn it into something else. It's like what we actively do in our lives. So um, when Mars is in Gemini, the person usually thrives on being busy and absolutely hates being bored. Clearly. They also can be impulsive and talk first, think later, and can be especially (laughs) quick to snap at someone if annoyed. And surviving residents report that Dorothea was often verbally abusive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the talk first, think later thing too with her lying about like things that her things that she did did that were obviously not true. But yeah. So to wrap it up. (laughs) I'm going to talk about a particularly defining aspect of Dorothea's chart, which is the opposition between the sun and Pluto. So planets, and we're considering the sun and moon a planet here, are said to be in opposition when they are 180 degrees apart or directly across from each other in the zodiac wheel. Opposition can be a very difficult aspect to deal with as opposing signs can bring vastly different energies and it can be really hard to bring those into harmony. So in Dorothea's case, her son is in Capricorn and her Pluto is in Cancer. So we have this earthy, practical Capricorn side opposed to this watery, emotional Cancer. Hmm. Opposites can attract, so this could actually be quite powerful if you are able to meld those two energies into something positive. So if you can combine that hardworking Capricorn with that like empathetic Cancer energy... You could become a very effective and insightful, like, healing person. Uh, Which I can see hints of in Dorothea, but she was never able to reach her full potential. And mostly lived her life with the tension between those two planets. And so if you're in tension Hmm. with those two planets, you're also prone to inner tension and negative self-destructive behavior. Which I see there for sure in Dorothea. I feel like there had to be a lot of self-hatred there as well. With all the lying she did about her past. Yeah. And she was never able to control her alcoholism either. This aspect of opposition, um, one in Cancer, one in Capricorn, can lead to a deep need to control yourself and life itself, which is Dorothea down to a T, because she had a very intense need to want to control other people's lives as well as her own. She wanted those checks. She was also kind of god in her little boarding house deciding life and death one other fact is they feel the need to recreate themselves often and dorothea definitely had a number of personas that she cycled through during her life so that makes sense as well and then lastly this need for control may stem from a traumatic event in childhood or at a childhood that was emotionally charged in general which yes that's what i got dorothea yep needed to meld those energies. Mm-hmm. I think she had it in her to actually be a healing person. She did help quite a few people as well as the ones that she helped out to her garden. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Let me show you your new bed. <laughs> I was say, the bed. flower bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I she could never pull it through. And I feel like she also has more of the Capricorn 
than I do of like the ambitious and wanting to be seen as important. And that's why she wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, be a part of the elite and mingle with the politicians and whatnot as well. Yeah. But ultimately, she, uh, I think, lived a pretty sad life. I do, like, I do think there's a lot of things she probably did hate herself, but didn't know what to do with that. And she was an alcoholic and a schizophrenic, undifferentiated, which means nothing. But <laughs> there's something with Dorothea went wrong. But unfortunately, it also cost the life of nine other people. Yeah. Damn. Yep. Oh, that was good. All right. That's all I got. Got some astrology, some ass news. <laughs> we'll do some <laughs> do, do, do. some ass additional news astrology. KNBC TV. Ass news. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah. Astrology. Some ass news. On July 7th, Mercury finally leaves its full post-retrograde shadow. Thank you. So we're fully, fully out of it and going to be, you know, re-enjoying all of our normal communication for sure now. There's also a new moon on July 9th, and this new moon is in Cancer. So new moons are, as I've stated before in previous episodes, new moons are always about beginnings, a time when things can take root and just kind of blossom into something new. So it's a good time to commit to some personal goals that might express some of the positive energies of this water sign. So being in Cancer, these positive energies would include something like going into our deepest or most irrational and intimate feelings and recognizing kind of what we sense as like a a sense of safety or security that we derive from from what we would think of as our home. And so like you want to allow yourself to just recognize that and accept support and be able to maybe start a project that can like be able to make your home more comfortable or cozy or something like that. So some some home projects, but also tying that to your sensitive feelings. So time oh, to get a little bit artsy crafty. At- wow, oh, so cute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a very cancer thing. But yeah, additionally beyond that, I mean, within your interpersonal relationships of two, of course, too, because of that sensitivity. Man, I am tired. I'm like skipping words. In well, my head. too bad <laughs> recording another episode immediately after this. <laughs> Oh, hello, everybody. Uh, instead of beer, you should get a cup okay. of coffee or something. I'll make some tea. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's a time to make some plans and, and start uh, making moves towards some rewarding outcomes from those emotional and sensitive beginnings, as little or small as they, or as little as or big as they can be. They can be um, little or and they can be small. You might s- Your choice. <laughs> precisely start <laughs> small start little. from there and then we'll work our way up <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my god i'm so sorry guys my brain it's a good thing you're not telling a story tonight <laughs> yeah really we're expecting these to kind of come to fruition after the full moon occurs so after another uh, few weeks here so yeah concentrate on new ways to be able to kind of improve your own domestic life and make yourself comfortable in your space and use that energy then to harness those powers to fulfill your emotional well-being and emotions with other relationships too. So that's what I've got. Sorry that oh, took no, so long. Oh no, no problem. We're already <laughs> we're in it. This we're is in it. Be fun. So I have one Yay. more little tidbit. So this episode will air on July fifth. So happy post Fourth of July. Hopefully everyone still has their fingers and toes. Yep, and eyebrows. And eyebrows. (laughs) We know how important those are. (laughs) This um, aspect is a new one for me, so I had to kind of look at it a little 
a little bit more, but um, so the sun is in Cancer sextile with Uranus and Taurus, and so just to clarify, an aspect is an angle between the planets, and a sextile is a 60 degree aspect or angle. But what this aspect means, or this sextile means, is that there could be some sudden changes in life that can reveal some deeply buried truths. So watch out. Sharp turn. Yeah, on the fifth, there may be some interesting things going on. That's what I've got for my mini astrological corner. The fifth is the first day of the course I'm TAing over on the East Coast. Some deep truths. Sarah, watch out. Yeah. Uh Like you love lobster rolls. In my heart. This is is definitely a truth. I'm going to be so jealous of you for the month of July. (laughs) Oh, and stuffed cohog. Yeah, me too. So as the new moon is in Cancer and you are improving your space and being comfortable in your space, take a moment to reach out to us because we would love to hear from you. You can connect with us on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, on Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com and check out our website at www.truecrimetrine.com. Send us pictures of your cats or any pet or feedback, whatever you want to do. Or don't talk to us. Follow your heart, but talk to us. Or at least send us us. pictures of your cats. Seriously. Okay. Well, as D.H. Lawrence says, No debemos sentirnos avergonzados de conquistar con el zodiaco, vale la pena conquistar con el zodiaco. Unless it's the zodiac killer. Hola! (laughs) I meant ole! I don't know. Ole! Good night! (laughs) (laughs) Buenos noches Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.